Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. We're highlighting remarks made by Scott Klusendorf during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute, which equips pro-life advocates to effectively defend their views in the public square. He's the author of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott has taught pro-life apologetics at over 80 colleges and universities, and his topic for this portion of Spotlight, Defending Your Pro-Life Beliefs on Hostile Turf, is also timely, given the pro-abortion public policies now in place in Illinois. For many of you today, you may feel here I am in a state with a governor who has sworn to oppose everything I hold dear and the culture lined up against us and you feel outgunned and in way over your head and you're wondering how can I, where I'm at, make a difference on such hostile turf? And I want to talk to you today about how you can make a case for life on hostile turf. And that matters to you because it's very tempting to want to give up and think there's nothing I can do here. Let's get out of here. But I'm going to encourage you to stay and fight, but not stay and fight without any weapons to engage, but with the tools of thought you need to fight the battle and engage your neighbors. And dare I even say some of our church members who don't understand this issue the way they need to. And I want to begin by giving you the three most important words in defending your pro-life view. And you may want to write these down. The three most important words. Word number one syllogism. Some of you are going, wait a minute, I haven't had enough coffee yet today to get that deep. What on earth are you talking about? A syllogism is simply a formal argument, a couple of premises followed by a conclusion. Here's a syllogism. Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. See how you got a couple of premises then a conclusion? Pro-lifers have a syllogism, and here's what I'm going to tell you men and women. If you don't stick to your syllogism like glue, if you're not tethered to that very tightly, when you try to discuss abortion with people, they will constantly change the subject on you. Listen, we are all prone to change the subject, aren't we, when we aren't having the better of a discussion? The people you're going to talk to on abortion are going to do the very same thing. And if you don't stay tethered to your argument, you're going to chase bunny trails all day long. So we want to make sure you understand that pro-life syllogism, which I'll give you in just a minute. Second most important word, you may want to write this down, syllogism. Anybody want to guess what the third one's going to be? Syllogism, that's correct. Here is your pro-life syllogism, and it's very straightforward. Premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. Now let me tell you something about that syllogism. There is only two ways you can defeat it. You can defeat it by showing the conclusion does not follow logically from the premises, meaning the argument is invalid, 
or you can defeat it by proving one or more of the premises is false. Outside of that, your argument stands. It does no good to say, well, you're a man. There goes your whole argument. I'm tempted to say in today's culture, well, how do you know that I'm a man? I mean, that's kind of risky in today's world, isn't it? How do you know my pronouns? How dare you presume things? But don't do that. But the point is, your argument, men or women, stands or falls on its merits, not your gender. Your argument is valid or invalid, sound or unsound. It also doesn't work to call your argument religious. Arguments are not religious. They are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. You can't defeat it by simply calling the argument a name the way a certain governor we will not mention often does. What you have to do is do the hard work of refuting it. And if you stick to your formal argument that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, abortion does that, therefore it's wrong, you can politely say to the people you're talking to, can I just make an observation? I made an argument. I noticed you didn't engage my argument. You just called me names. I want to be open-minded, and if my argument is bad, I want to fix it. But you're not helping me if you just insult me. And you actually call them out on what they're trying to do, which is to change the subject on you. Don't let them change the subject. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's how you survive on a hostile turf. Got to keep the main thing the main thing. And I have some good news for you today. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to be an effective pro-life defender. You don't even have to have a graduate degree or even a high school degree. But you do need to be clear on three questions that we're going to look at in this session. And if you have clarity on these three questions, you can make a difference where God has placed you. One other thing I want to say to you, a lot of people give up because they think to themselves, how am I going to memorize answers to every objection that's thrown at me? You don't need to. Your job, men and women, is not to close the deal on the spot. But ask yourself this question, how many people have you won to the Lord in your evangelistic efforts. I know the answer because the number for you is the same one for me. Precisely zero, because it's God who's in the business of saving people. Your job is to be a faithful ambassador to him. And you know what? I think my friend Greg Kokel puts it real well. Our primary job description is to put pebbles in people's shoes. You ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking? It wears on you and wears on you till you stop to deal with it. Your job is to give people something to think about. And here are three questions that will help you give them something to think about on the issue of abortion. Question number one, we're going to look at the issue, what is the unborn? And I'll explain why that's so essential. Question number two, we need to be clear on what makes us valuable as human beings. And question number three, we need to be clear on what our duty is. If you've got clarity on those three, you can make a difference where God has placed you, and you can make a difference even on hostile turf. So let's look at that first question, what is the unborn? I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Can we kill the unborn? You know what your answer should be? Yes, if. If what? If the unborn are not human. If abortion does not intentionally kill an innocent human being, there's no reason to oppose it whatsoever. But you know what the problem is in our culture today? People don't want to answer that question, what is the unborn? So you get Governor Pritzker talking about we need to celebrate reproductive freedom and that reproductive freedom is, quote, good for everyone, unquote. Governor, I have a question for you. With all due respect to your office, does everyone include the unborn? Is reproductive health care, by which he means abortion, good for the unborn? No, it's not, is it? He just assumed the unborn aren't human. 
He didn't argue for it. He just assumes it. And people do this with abortion all the time. I said I wasn't going to get political in this session, and I won't. But I'll just say that the current president of the United States, who I will not name except he goes by the initials Joe Biden, <laughs> said basically the same thing on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. He says, ours should be a culture that welcomes the advancement of health care for women. What does he mean by health care? He means abortion. Uh, Mr. President, does women include women in the womb? No, he only assumes, he doesn't argue for it, that the unborn don't count. And this is what you have to challenge as a pro-life advocate. You cannot let that assumption go. Let me ask you this. Would anybody you know argue for choice and who decides if we were talking about killing five-year-olds? Never in a million years. You know why they talk that way on abortion? Because they assume the unborn aren't human like that five-year-old. Or they talk about how we should trust people to make their own personal decisions. Would any of you argue that way if we were talking about killing teenagers? Some of you are going, wait a minute, on that one, let's have a discussion. <laughs> no, they only argue that way with the unborn. Why? Because they're assuming the unborn aren't human. You cannot let that assumption go unchallenged. You've got to force your critics to answer the question, what is the unborn, before they assume we can just go ahead and kill them. And too often, pro-lifers don't challenge that. Well, I'm not going to assume an answer to the question, what is the unborn? I'm going to answer it for you. What is the unborn? Here's your answer in a sentence. A distinct, living, and whole member of the human family, even though that entity has yet to grow and develop fully. From the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. Everybody hold out your hand like this for a moment. Give yourself a good pinch on the back of your hand. Give yourself a good pinch. Congratulations, you just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the lap in front of you. I have more bad news for you. Each one of those cells you just sent to their demise individually contains your entire DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass murder? You did not, and here's why, and I think you know why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were at the embryonic stage, the way I was at the embryonic stage. There's a difference in kind between these cells that are merely part of a larger human being and you as a whole living member of the human family, even at the one cell stage. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but how do I explain this? Because people say to me all the time, that early embryo doesn't even look like a baby. And they're right, it doesn't. Have you ever seen a picture of an early embryo? At the 10-day stage, for example, you need a microscope to see it. And it looks like just a ball of cells. And people rightly say, that's not a baby. And they're right, it's not a baby. But it is a human being at the earliest stages of development. And sometimes our intuitions can be mistaken. Men and women from the one cell stage, you were already there. We just couldn't see you because you were still developing. That's the science of embryology. Now, that's pretty straightforward, but why is it then someone like your current governor doesn't get this? And here's why. We're part of a culture that thinks moral truth claims are like ice cream. You have your preference and I have mine. And just like I shouldn't judge you for liking chocolate over vanilla, so you shouldn't judge me and my moral choices. When pro-lifers say abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being, we are not making a preference or subjective claim. We're making an objective claim about what's right or wrong regardless of preferences. 
What happens in the culture is people hear you say abortion is wrong, and you know what they think up here? Oh, you just don't like abortion. But we're not arguing that abortion is wrong because we dislike it. We're arguing it's wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being. How do we persuade people and reach them when they've reduced abortion to an issue of mere preference? Answer, we give them a chance to view what's actually at stake in this debate. How many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, Band of Brothers series. We're at about 100% of this auditorium that paid money to go watch gruesome imagery on the screen. Why did you do it? For the same reason I did. You knew that those images conveyed truths that no words could ever convey. And men and women, there are large numbers of our fellow citizens that will never be persuaded that abortion is wrong with a capital W until they see it. There are men and women listening to me now, as there is in every audience I talk to, who for you, this topic today is taking tremendous courage for you to be here because for you, abortion is personal. And I don't know if I'm talking to men who encouraged a woman to abort or a woman who chose that because you thought you didn't have another avenue out. But I want you to know the reason I'm not here to condemn you is because we are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the gospel. The gospel is not that God just sweeps our sin under a rug. He can't do that if he's holy. If he is a holy God, he has to punish sin. And guess what? He did. He took a substitute, Jesus, who comes to earth, who willingly bears in his body the visitation of God's wrath and judgment for our sin. And the good news of the gospel is, if your trust is in Jesus alone for your salvation, God the Father is no longer your judge. He is your heavenly Father and you get adopted into his family. Why? There isn't anything you do that makes you right with God. Your good deeds won't make up for your bad ones. But God sent his substitute, and because Jesus stood in your place condemned and not only lived the life of perfect obedience you and I have not, but bore in full the judgment of God against our sin, God looks at Jesus and judges us on the merits of Christ, not our own righteousness. So that means that if your trust is in Jesus today, your sin has been absorbed by Jesus and you are declared righteous. You're not made righteous, but you're declared righteous because of what Jesus did standing in your place condemned. That's the gospel. And God proved that his sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient because he raised Jesus from the dead three days later. So I say to you, if you've had an experience with abortion, you don't need an excuse. You need what everybody in this room needs in exchange Christ's righteousness for your sinfulness. Scott Klusendorf, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. More of his remarks from that special event after this. It's a big evening you don't want to miss. The Illinois Family Institute's Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet with best-selling author and nationally syndicated radio host, Eric Metaxas. Friday, November 3rd at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. To attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org. We're talking about religious freedom being constricted by the state. Will the church wake up and say, this is wrong? Eric Metaxas is the author of Bonhoeffer, Amazing Grace, and his latest book, Letter to the American Church, is a wake-up call for Christians to speak out and protect religious liberty. If you will speak up, 
things will change if we would but try. Eric Metaxas and the IFI Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet, Friday, November 3rd at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. To attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org. With a woman, a look at culture from a Christian worldview. I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Ever since the COVID-19 lockdowns, there's been an increase in disruptive behavior in public spaces. Concert attendees have disrupted performances. One fan threw water on rapper Cardi B and a couple fans distracted country singer Miranda Lambert with selfies. Movie theaters are also increasingly lit by those scrolling through TikTok videos and Instagram and then ignoring or yelling at anyone who protests. These incidents are also examples of how our private digital lives shape how we live publicly and in person. The habits of thought and action that are cultivated by tweeting immediate reactions, posting hot takes, and constantly sharing pictures follows us off the screen. Because digital existence teaches us to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, we disregard how we treat others and behave in public. Or as Daniel Borstein said, we risk being the first people in history to have been able to make their illusions so vivid, so persuasive, so realistic that they live in them. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. We're highlighting remarks made by Scott Klusendorf during IFI's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute. During this portion of Spotlight, he'll explain why some arguments against abortion just don't work and how the word so needs to be part of the pro-life vocabulary. I am reminded of many historical examples of imagery changing people who didn't want to change on an issue. I don't know how many of you have visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., but if you have, the first thing you're confronted with as you arrive there is this metal engraving of Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander in Europe in World War II, sitting in the front seat of a jeep with a pale, sickened look on his face. There's a story behind that engraving, and here it is. Eisenhower, either through ignorance or just being too busy, did not really think that the death camps were all that big a deal. But he had a Jewish aide who badgered him and badgered him to go look at one of the death camps. And finally, Eisenhower, losing patience with this aide, said, fine, I'll go look at one of your bleepity bleep camps, but I need you to leave me alone after that. So Eisenhower gets in the Jeep with the aide, the aide drives him out to Ordorf, a recently liberated camp. And Eisenhower gets out of the Jeep, and he's immediately overwhelmed by the stench of the place. He ducks into a couple of the vacated bungalows that were there. He then goes into a third building, and when he emerges from that one, he ducks behind another building. And after finishing throwing up for 20 minutes, he came back to that Jewish aide, and he grabbed the guy by the shoulder and said, I want you to get every American company commander on the phone within 50 miles of this place. I'm told the American soldier doesn't know what he's fighting for. When he sees this, he'll know what he's fighting against. What changed the Supreme Allied Commander? Seeing evil when he didn't want to see it. We wonder why, why many of our leaders in the church don't discuss abortion. A pastor who is not brokenhearted over abortion will not risk the flack he's going to take for preaching on it. You have got to break people's hearts on this issue before you change how they think and ultimately behave because the images convey truth that words alone often cannot. 
I have a question for you. What makes us equal? Are we all equal physically? Because I can tell you at age 62, I cannot play basketball the way I could when I was 22. And as I look at this auditorium, I can tell there's a lot of you here that would absolutely clean me out on the basketball court one-on-one right now. But men and women, if Planned Parenthood is right, that we can destroy a human fetus because its development does not match our own, if development is what makes us valuable, and you have more of it than me, then you have a greater right to life than me, and human equality is out the window. Are we all equal in terms of our self-awareness at this moment? If Peter Singer, the ethicist at Princeton University, is correct, that we can not only dismember a living human fetus, but kill a newborn because neither is self-aware, and he's right, neither is, If self-awareness is what gives you equality and value and a right to life and you have more of it than me, then you have a greater right to life than me and human equality is out the window. There is one thing we share equally, doesn't come in degrees, and it's not something that comes and goes in the course of your lifetime. You don't gain it, lose it, get a little more of it, get a little less of it. You have it from the moment you begin to exist. And that one thing we all share equally, here comes another big word, we all share the same human nature, which if you're a Christian knows bears the image of God. Some of you are going, wait a minute, syllogism was bad enough. What do you mean by nature? What, what does that mean? All living things have natures that determine the kind of thing they are. You're a human being. What kind of nature do you have? Human being, when did you get your human nature? The moment you began to exist. Now, you might get pushback on this. Somebody might say to you, oh, wait, I get it that you have a human nature, but not that embryo at the 10 cell stage. Here's the question you need to put to them. How is it possible for two human parents to create offspring that isn't human, but later become so? To quote the great philosopher Ricky Ricardo, they have some splaining to do at that point. How is it even possible for humans to create offspring that isn't human, but later become so? Make them answer that. It's not enough for them to dismiss it with a wave of the hand. There are differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, but men and women, don't let them get away by merely pointing out that there are differences. That's not good enough. They gotta go a step further and argue why those differences matter in the first place. It's not enough to cite a difference. Make them argue for it. Here's the mistake pro-lifers often make. You make your pro-life case and somebody says, well, that embryo's not even self-aware yet. And right away, the pro-lifer buys the premise of the objection, and they say this, why that embryo has brainwaves by week six, and by week 12 can dream in the womb. And they think they've refuted the argument. No, you just bought the premise that somehow self-awareness or cognitive ability is what gives us a right to life. Challenge it. Say, how self-aware do I have to be not to be killed? And why is self-awareness decisive and not something else? Make them do the hard work of defending their claim. If I claim there's a pink elephant swinging from the exit sign back there, three of you just looked and it was the right thing to do, who bears the burden of proof, you or me? I made the claim, I bear the burden of proof. When somebody says we can discount the unborn because they're different from us, make them explain why that difference matters. Don't let them get away with merely citing a difference. Here are the four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. And none of them are good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. There's a difference of size, a difference of level of development. There's a difference of environment, meaning where you're located, and a difference of degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, and you can remember those four differences. 
Here are the four differences. Let's show you why they don't matter. Size, there's your S in the SLED acronym I just gave you. You were smaller as an embryo, but since when does body size determine your value? Men are generally larger than women. Do men deserve more rights than women simply because they're larger? Body size doesn't equal value. What about your level of development? You were less developed as an embryo. You know what your answer should be when people say that? Why, that embryo isn't even developed yet. Your answer should be what it was when you were a teenager and your mom and dad said something you didn't like. So, why does that matter? I want you to bring that word so back into your vocabulary. How does development determine what I am or what my value is? Two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. Two-year-old girls do not have a developed reproductive system yet. Are they less human and valuable than the 21-year-old who does? I speak to a lot of teenagers in high schools, and I often say to them, as I did recently at one school with 800 Catholic students up in the bleachers in the gym, I said, you are less developed than your parents. You're less developed than your parents physically, and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which came as a complete shock to all of them. <laughs> but the reality is you don't reach your intellectual peak till your mid-40s. Do mom and dad have a greater right to life than you simply because they're more developed? By the way, this is exactly the point Lincoln would make when he would debate proponents of slavery. Lincoln's opponents would say, that slave differs from us, Mr. Lincoln. And Lincoln would say, yeah, he does, but that's the wrong question. The question is not, does he differ from us, but does he differ from us in ways that justify enslaving him? And to quote Lincoln directly, here's what he said. You say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then. The fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man. Take care. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color, it's a matter of intelligence. The white man you wrongly allege has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. Oh, you say it's not intellect, it's not skin color, it's a matter of interest. The white man has it in his interest to enslave the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person that can make it his interest to enslave you. Do you see what Lincoln did here? The very arguments that were being used to disqualify the unborn worked equally well for people, or excuse me, disqualify the, the slave worked equally well for white people. Peter Singer at, at Princeton is right. The very arguments that Planned Parenthood uses to disqualify the unborn work equally well to kill infants and toddlers. At least Singer is consistent. He argues no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth and disabled infants can be killed on the spot by the attending physician. Why? Because newborns, like fetuses, are not self-aware. They're not persons. There's no individual there yet to kill. At least he's consistent. Planned Parenthood wants to draw this arbitrary line at birth, and Singer looks right at him and says, you can't do that. Your own arguments go way further than you want them to, and at least he's consistent, though he is barbaric. Size, level of development. Where you are does not determine what you are. How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to a valuable human being that we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your address isn't going to do it for you. 
Finally, degree of dependency. Yeah, you depended on your mother for survival. You know what your answer should be? So, why does that matter? How does it follow that because I depend on someone, they can slit my throat? Make them answer that question. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Let's end with this question. What's our duty? And I'm going to give it to you in a sentence, men and women. It is to love our unborn neighbor, and that entails defending him even on hostile turf. And I know that's not easy in a culture like ours. And all of us here are going to have to make up our minds. Do we care more about defending truth for our king than we do what the culture thinks around us? You will not be popular if you're pro-life. You're going to take heat for it. But you're going to have to make that decision. And if we understand love biblically, love is not an emotion biblically. It's a behavior. It's what we do even when we don't feel like it that really counts as love. Think about the Good Samaritan. He not only felt pity for the beating victim, he took pity, even though he had to go way out of his way to do it. And Jesus said, there's what it means to love. Now, I understand in our flesh we can never love perfectly, but we can all do better at loving our unborn neighbor, even if it is costly. I realize you got it hard here in Illinois. I realize you're on hostile turf. It's not enough for us to just feel pro-life sentiment. We have to behave like we love the unborn. That means sacrificially supporting organizations like this one. It means sacrificially supporting our local pregnancy centers. It means looking for students that need to be trained on how to defend their pro-life view and sending them to places where they can learn to do that. It's going to take sacrifice to win this culture war. It's not going to happen by us just feeling bad about it. We have to love behaviorally. And that's what I hope you will do here. That's the purpose of today, to help us all be courageous and standing firm, even on hostile turf. God bless you as you do that. Scott Klusendorf, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute. You can find out more at prolifetraining.com. Now, plans are already in the works for IFI's 2024 Worldview Conference. We'll be providing updates, so stay tuned. Be sure to join best-selling author and conservative national radio host Eric Metaxas for IFI's Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet Friday, November 3rd at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. If you'd like to attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org or call IFI at 708-781-9328. We'd love to see you there. So click events at IllinoisFamily.org or call 708-781-9328. Sign on for IFI email updates at IllinoisFamily.org, and you can go there to give to IFI. All donations are tax deductible. Please tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. And until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.